0: The new Super Beats Hard Choose Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit
1: com, and save 15% with promo code DEAL.
0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live.
2: Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Danielle Brill, Tech at Work writer for the Washington Post. Today, we're gonna discuss the future of innovation and how workplace culture has changed over the course of the pandemic. Later, we'll hear from Quaylin Ellingrud, senior partner at McKinsey & Company. But first, I'm joined by Aaron Levy, the co-founder and CEO of Box. Aaron, welcome to Washington Post Live.
1: Thanks, Danielle. How you doing?
2: I'm doing well. It's good to see you again. Um, Well, let's get started. For people who aren't, familiar with Box. Can you just tell us a little bit about what Box does?
1: Yeah, so um, Box is a platform that helps enterprises securely store, share, manage, and work with all of their most important business data. So uh, there are critical contracts, financial information, marketing assets, intellectual property, basically anything that an enterprise wants to be able to securely work with. We have a cloud platform Uh, that helps manage that information. We have over 100,000 customers, and about 67 uh, plus percent of the Fortune 500 uses our platform in in some way.
2: Got it. And So, Aaron, uh, I've got to start with AI. Obviously, everybody's talking about it. Uh, You seem to be a big fan of the release of some of the new generative AI systems uh, that have created a big splash, and obviously these are systems that can create content or images from a basic prompt. Tell us a little bit about why you're such a fan of these systems.
1: Yeah, so the the real breakthrough in the past couple of years has, uh, as you noted, uh, really been generative AI, and uh, correspondingly, uh, these large language models that were trained off of just an incredible amount of text uh, all around the internet, um, and uh, what we've what what uh, companies like OpenAI have produced is really an understanding um, of language, uh, at least in a mathematical sense, and um, the probability of how words will flow in a sequence based on uh, just again, you know, just an incredible amount of mining of all of the world's data. And why that's really powerful um, is, uh, you know, in the most specific way, you know, what we've seen with ChatGPT is you can ask a question and it can basically create a predictive response to that question. We've seen it with Bing, ChatGPT and others. Uh, But the reason why we get really excited by this at Box is we have a platform where there are tens of billions of documents that are stored. And in each one of those documents is an incredible amount of business value. It could be a contract, it could be a patent, it could be research, it could be critical meeting notes. And in the past, it's been very, very hard, in many cases, cost prohibitive to try and take AI and help customers really understand what's inside of that information. Um, And with large language models um, that um, that we've seen with the example of ChatGPT, this has actually become much more affordable, much more efficient um, and much more general purpose. And so we imagine in the future you could be looking at a contract and you could say, what's the riskiest, um, you know, what are the riskiest clauses in this contract? Or please summarize the key terms of this contract or please um, add uh, you know, critical information like the date that it's going to be, um, you know, due and structure that and then create a workflow around it. So these are things that previously really only humans could have done in any, in any kind of reasonable way. Um, but now for the first time, AI can, can solve these types of problems with a high degree of accuracy and at a vastly lower price um, than what we would be able to do, um, you know, with, uh, with any kind of human labor. And so this is a real breakthrough in terms of, of you know, certainly what we can build in the future at Box. But frankly, how enterprise software is likely going to work in the future as well, um, we see a, just a tremendous amount of opportunity uh, for how software will become more intelligent. Um, you'll be able to automate way more tasks, and it can frankly free up and in, uh, in individuals and humans uh, to go and actually work on much more important things than a lot of the daily, um, you know, drudgery that uh, that goes into our daily work.
2: Yeah, those are some interesting applications for sure. Um, I I do want to bring up, obviously, we've seen some early problems with these tools, right? Um, Everything from, you know, Bing's chat mode calling itself Sydney and talking about how it wanted to be human and express emotions. Um, Also, some other serious flaws, some inaccuracies, you know, um, kind of making up stuff when it can't exactly pull things together the right way. Uh, Is this in its current form? ready for any primetime usage? And, and what would this mean for workers who may be asked to use this?
1: Yeah, so um, I, again, it's really important to separate ChatGPT from the underlying technology, which is this large language model. Um, and ChatGPT um, is, you know, if you ask it a question, it doesn't actually know the answer to that question. It knows the sequence of words that most likely is going to follow that that question. And um and so it it's trained off of the all of the data in the world and on the internet and as we know um, there are a lot of places on the internet where either there's misinformation or um, or where where you know the internet is not just full of facts you have a lot of you know fiction even intentionally um, that that these types of systems are trained off of so it's its job is really not to produce facts or not uh, or or not um, its job is just to be able to write out words. Um, in a uh, in a way that that is sort of the highest probability answer to uh, to a question or a prompt, and so it's really important to think about where can you then best apply that type of technology. You know, going to ChatGPT directly and asking for a question and then just sort of trusting the answer is maybe not a great use case. Um, being able to use ChatGPT to quickly brainstorm an idea or to review writing that you've already done and it could improve it in certain ways um, because of all of the information it's been trained on. These are great use cases. Uh, for something like chat gbt but when you take a look at the underlying technology the ai models themselves what they're really really good at is again understanding or synthesizing human language and then being able to predictably answer things um, or prompts based on that and so so what's really powerful is when you give it an existing set of facts so you're not asking the ai model to tell you a fact you're giving it the facts but now you use ai to better be able to interact with those facts um, where you can now query them more efficiently, you can synthesize them, you can create summarization, you can probe with specific questions about a set of data that you might already have. That's really where we see a lot of the power in the enterprise. So a lot of the use cases, again, that, that we've seen with ChatGPT, where it's giving maybe you know not accurate answers um, uh, or Bing, where it's not giving accurate answers, these are probably less of the relevant use cases that we would expect to see in an enterprise um, as much as really using the underlying language model to apply it to a much broader set of use cases, and that's that's where we see it be really really powerful. But again, I think just um, you know I think further emphasizes that humans are going to remain a core part of everything in the future. Um, you know we're we're not going to be uh, for any time soon being in a position where we could fully automate away really any major task or set of tasks. Uh, and this always is going to provide a role for humans to help stitch together a lot of the work that maybe AI is doing. Um, and in some cases, we'll move more into being an editor of of some of that AI's work. Um, but still, I think, frankly, we're going to be creating the vast majority of all of the things that the AI is going to go uh, and maybe improve or automate or streamline or make a more efficient in some capacity.
2: So in terms of enterprise AI, you know, I know one of the concerns that a lot of people have is, feeding an AI system, uh, you know, potentially sensitive information and having that model learn off of your information. And then, you know, does that get used in other ways? I guess, how do you address that in in your ideal world? Would every company have its own sort of internal protected AI or how, how does that work?
1: Yeah, so there's a few different ways this could play out. Um, and, and first and foremost, any customer using our AI uh, or any of the partners that we work with um, it has full transparent visibility into what happens with their data. And so we think that one of the most likely co- and common use cases is that you would maybe have data in box and you would leverage um, AI, but that AI can't train against your data. So anything you do with that AI model is effectively you know treated as a black box or ephemeral um and you and the system is not sort of improving or learning from any of that data. that That's going to be just you know sort of fundamental to anything that we do in the AI space. But over time, we can imagine a world where enterprises might have their own trained models just on their data. and um, and that's where you would see even more powerful use cases. So imagine an organization that had, um, you know its HR uh, data or HR documents. Uh, you know, uh, training a specific model that then any employee could go to and ask questions, or be able to get feedback or support. Um, these are incredibly powerful uh, opportunities for for enterprise because now they have so much uh, data that they can turn into real business value, as opposed to it being just sort of locked away in databases or storage systems where they're not actually. Um, you know, getting and creating ongoing value from that information. So we do think that enterprise-specific train models uh, will be a thing in the future. But for today's use cases, um, you know, really the 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 you know the the, the governing model has to be that that um, you know the AI uh, uh, system is not being trained off of your proprietary enterprise data, and that's how we operate with all of our customers.
2: Got it. And in terms of that uh, sort of if businesses were to begin using these kinds of systems where AI is is doing some work for them, I guess what risks exist if it's not obviously the chat GPT risks because we're applying it in a different way here. um, What kind of risks do exist and how, you know, should we think about those or should companies think about those as they consider applying AI to their systems?
1: Well, I think I think it's really important that enterprises understand the explainability of of uh, you know how AI is coming up with its answers. Um, you know, for instance, as we imagine you know a lot of these use cases. Anytime an AI is creating a suggestion or doing some action, uh, it's super important that the AI sort of explains why it did that, uh, where the underlying data maybe came from to make that decision, um, and then the human in that in that sort of workflow. Um, you know, probably needs to be in a position where they can quickly review that and actually sort of validate um, the assumptions that, that are being made from the AI. I think we're you know we're we're many many years, maybe decades away from uh, from you know a scenario where you would just instantly trust whatever the decision is that the AI is uh, is doing uh, without any other kind of you know inspection or validation uh, from a human. So so that is sort of you know years out from any of the use cases that we imagine. But I think companies need to think about. Um, you know, a bunch of of uh, sort of considerations. Uh, uh, the data privacy aspect was one that you just mentioned. Um, how you actually incorporate AI into into workflows in an organization. What are the internal sort of decisions that a company makes around the kind of quote unquote ethics um, or maybe norms of using AI. You know, we, you know, I think one one question that's going to come up quite a bit is, can you use ChatGPT to write an employee performance review uh, or to write an internal business memo? Uh, These are really interesting, both societal questions, but also business specific questions, you know, will different companies adopt, you know, different, um, uh, different, uh, you know, hygiene or norms uh, around these kinds of use cases. I think we're, you know, really just starting in November kind of kicked off a new wave of just fundamental questions we have to be asking, you know, how much of this, how much of that manual work that we're doing. Um, you know, with our technology is is going to be done in the future or uh, or how much will just, you know, kind of be completely automated for us behind the scenes. Um, you know, there's a recent stat from GitHub um, where a significant portion of code that now is being generated from their GitHub co-pilot feature, uh, which is this auto-generation of code, um, is now being done by AI. And so that's an incredible stat to just within, a you know, basically a two-year period A very significant portion of code that's being generated now is uh is being done through ai and that's um that's something that we would just never have anticipated uh, you know half a decade ago so we're in a very fast moving you know industry and and space um companies are going to have to wrestle with with where they apply ai and um uh but but i think what's important is that companies do start to think about uh what is the role of ai in their organization um uh, you know i think i think we we see a future where while we don't necessarily know how you get ahead in AI with AI because because we don't know exactly what becomes commoditized versus what remains differentiated, what we do know is that by not leveraging at all, you will go behind. You will fall behind. And so that's a, I think a, a sort of a way to think through, you know the kind of dynamic that we're going to be seeing for years to come.
2: And is Box, I know you mentioned this was sort of an exciting uh, idea for Box or opportunity for Box and how it could be applied to its own processes and what it offers uh, companies. Is Box experimenting with this? The, are you personally experimenting with this?
1: Um, you know, we, we I, I can't make any announcements today, I've been told by the team. So, um, but what I would say is that, um, you know, we we have been working on AI related projects for nearly a decade. Um, we, uh, as a content cloud, we're building really the uh, end-to-end life cycle of everything that you do with content in a single cloud platform. So the storage, the sharing, the workflow, the e-signature, the analytics, the collaboration. And so you can imagine that intelligence sort of is something that gets infused into all of those use cases. How do you secure your data? How do we do that more intelligently? You know, this is already an area that we apply... AI and machine learning too, but we see even more use cases over time that are possible. Um, you know, you take something like uh, being able to summarize documents or streamline a workflow. These are really exciting possible use cases for us in the future. So no announcements. However, uh, I would just say, um, you know, you can you can kind of see what type of innovation we've done in the past and and it, it shows, I think, how excited we are for, uh, for this space.
2: Got it, darn it on the announcements though. <laughs> Uh, let's quickly switch over. I want to talk a little bit about return to office. Uh, last yeah. we spoke, you had actually uh, mentioned something that uh, you know at the time I believe Box was still remote. Uh, I wanted to sort of update that. Is that still the current policy, and uh, what's expected for the future?
1: Yeah, so um, so we've uh, we've actually been uh, fairly flexible. I mean, during the the kind of peak and throughout the pandemic, we were largely remote. Um, we had we had very kind of health health conscious policies on this front, um, you know, over the past six to nine months, we've now opened up uh, our offices globally. And, um, and we really encouraged um, uh, these sort of in real life days, Tuesdays and Thursdays. Um, and we've been seeing, you know, really, you know, all, you know, near exponential growth of participation in coming back to the office on those days. And, and we've really set the expectation that, um, that, you know, two to three days a week, um, and, you know, some people might do more, but two to three days a week is sort of the the right approach for us, um, for at least folks near an office. Now, through the pandemic, we've probably doubled the amount of hiring that we've done remotely. And so uh, for anybody who's remote, they're going to basically remain remote um, unless they obviously move to... To a, a hub location, but we do think it's really important to bring boxers, um, uh, you know, back together on on a regular cadence, um, you know, where, where applicable. And we think there's a lot of power in the collaboration that happens, the osmosis that happens, the training of newer employees um, uh, that 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 really is is important. Um, and we do believe that the future is hybrid. So um, uh, and um, and so we we want to best balance both. How do you work remotely and have more flexibility? And uh, really drive and get a lot of value from that in-person collaboration. So uh, I would say we are firmly in that kind of hybrid camp.
2: And is that a mandate? I'm sorry, just to clarify, those two to three days is that a mandate or just like a suggestion?
1: Um, you know, if there's a if there's something in between mandate and suggestion, that's where we're at. So, um, so it's uh, it's an expectation, um, but it's not. Um, you know, we, we have. We we also are I think mature and and sort of uh, professional and and we think that people will be adults about it. So uh, we know that some people have childcare um, constraints or uh, you know healthcare constraints. And so uh, for for those folks, it's it's not a mandate. You know we we, we believe in flexibility. We we were already flexible before the pandemic, um, but it's an expectation in the sense that it's it's kind of a putting a flag in the ground around the kind of culture that we want to build. Uh, you know, I think companies that don't put that flag on the ground um, end up, you know, probably more, um, you know, uh, veered toward being largely just remote. And we actually think that's super cool for a lot of companies. Um, but we believe in actually the power of balancing these two worlds, which means you do have to sort of set the kind of expectations and have a rhythm for the organization. So we've looked at companies like Asana, we've looked at Apple, we've looked at Google, um, OpenAI, many others uh, that that I think have found this this good sort of Hybrid model where where you do do build you know kind of critical mass and you have that rhythm of of folks coming in, but you do have more flexibility than you would have had before the pandemic, and that's kind of how how we we view things.
2: So speaking of Google, you know Google and Amazon and others have have actually created mandates for three days a week, and I know Disney just came out um, expecting for four, and again a mandate. I guess what is your stance on on those pushes to sort of have like employees mandated back in for three to four days a week?
1: Well, uh, I I love it in the sense of getting to watch different different approaches. Uh, I think it's so healthy to to be able to have a very dynamic ecosystem where, you know, we, we see some companies are going to be remote and virtual only. You get to sort of watch how that company collaborates and how they work. You have companies that are sort of very flexible, and so then that kind of veers a little bit more still remote. You have companies that have, have sort of established you know, hey, we're going to develop norms around around our working style. Um, you know, I think that's companies like Asana, um, Uber and others, where they they have sort of created these in real life days. That's probably where where you'll see us again firmly land. Um, and then you have companies that have maybe taken more, um, you know, stances at the other end of that spectrum. Uh, D- Disney is an example. Uh, maybe Amazon is, is is somewhere in there. And I think it'll be exciting to see um, just how that how that plays out. I'm, I'm a fan of I'm actually a fan of all models Existing, Um, and then I think companies have to choose their specific uh, approach with their organization and their philosophy. I think this is a, this has been this sort of, um, you know, almost religious, uh, you know, type battle uh, in a lot of cases. And um, and I I don't really see it as that. I think actually just companies need to to land on an approach that works for them. Um, Obviously, maybe certain employees won't like the approach that the company lands on. In which case, obviously, there's a you know a lot of different types of options out there. But we kind of have, we believe we have a strong sense of our culture and the the things that um, that we've done over the years that make it a strong culture, and 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 that kind of largely fits this hybrid model that we've landed on.
2: So, if the Bay Area is sort of leading the way on um, the number of companies that are allowing for remote work, I wonder if you yeah. think this has any impact on Silicon Valley as an innovation hub or the expectation of what Silicon Valley offers
1: yeah well, I, I do think um I you know, I think if you kind of imagined a world where all of Silicon Valley was always remote, and I mean the location, the geography, if all of the companies were always remote within Silicon Valley, then you know, you would sort of uh, you know over a fifty year period, you'd sort of say, well, then then you don't really need to have a a physical location for for this hotbed of of innovation. Uh, it would just wouldn't make any sense because because people are not actually physically required to be to be, um, you know, uh, uh, near each other uh, for anything. And so so I, I think that, um, and that was, you know, really during the peak of the pandemic, that was this open conversation was, is there a Silicon Valley anymore? But I think now what you've seen is with enough, you know, you have enough companies that are now coming back. You have a resurgence of startups. You know, Y Combinator is now being done again, physically, um, you know, here, as opposed to being fully virtual. So I think it's a it's a fantastic place to start a company, to grow a company. I think, on, you know, I think offices are, are you know continuing to have more and more um, uh, you know workforces uh, you know show up, but it will be different forever uh, because because of this hybrid approach and companies at the same time are hiring from more locations. You know we did multiple acquisitions, you know throughout the pandemic, none of them were in Silicon Valley. Um, so that means that there's incredible teams all around the world uh, that are building amazing companies. We we were fortunate enough to to bring a few of those on board, and so I think what's great is that we have a a situation where. Literally any team can create an amazing company from nearly anywhere in the world. I think that's only a good thing for innovation um, and the digital ecosystem in general. And at the same time, I think that that Silicon Valley is still going to play an important role uh, because I think having a physical concentration of, of critical mass, whether it's talent or VCs um, you know, or board members, I think that is helpful uh, to, uh, to the innovation cycle. So I think we're just going to see, again, a, a very dynamic, um, you know, diverse approach to, to how this all plays out.
2: Well, Aaron, we've only got a couple of minutes left, and I definitely want to touch base with you on layoffs. Um, obviously, we've seen a lot of movement in the tech industry. Uh, tech companies that have slashed hundreds and thousands of jobs. Uh, first of all, I want to get your take on the industry, and also any insight to, uh, you know, has there been any layoffs at Box, or are there any coming?
1: Yeah. So. Um- so in our case, we're, we're maybe a little bit more fortunate on this front um, uh, because we went through an exercise about three years ago, going through the entire business and setting a foundation for profitable growth at scale. And as a part of, of that foundation, we had to make a bunch of operational decisions and create a lot of hygiene internally for how we open up new investments, uh, what areas do we grow in, what product innovation can we invest in, And that put us in a position where we have a very, very rigorous process uh, for how we make investments across the company. And so, um, I think unlike some companies, and this is just we were fortunate to have done this years ago, um, but unlike some companies, we we didn't, you know, dramatically overinvest relative to our growth rate or kind of what was happening in the industry. And so that's let us put us put up well over 20% operating margin, um, you know, results in in for instance the past couple of quarters. So kind of a much higher degree of profitability. And that's that's just again a discipline that now is baked into the company and, and it's it's how we've executed um, over the past year and and how we will continue to do. So um, other than some you know kind of one-off situations where we might have to move some funding from one organization to another or um, adapt some individual's roles, uh, we've not had to do you know the the, the sort of broad-based layoffs that um, that we've seen. But that's really only just due to the fact that we got ahead of this many years ago. So we were more just you know kind of fortunate from a timing standpoint to build that into the business. Um, you know, when you look at across the, the rest of the industry, um, I, I do think that we're in an era of, of basically uh, businesses uh, that that for years and years have just been funded with more and more constant venture capital, uh, in many cases losing large amounts of money. Um, I think we're in a period where, uh, you know, probably starting with Wall Street, uh, but all the way down now into private markets, um, you know, these businesses and startups are realizing that, that they have to be profitable at, at some point at scale. And so you're going through really a kind of a cultural change in Silicon Valley where costs do matter, profit does matter, um, building sustainable long term businesses matter. And um, and that's really just the, the I think the the period that we're in right now. Um, but I'm, I'm you know, I, I think as, as a result of going through this and at the other end of it, um, I think you're going to have very healthy businesses that get built um, that um, uh, that that, you know, still have an incredible amount of opportunity ahead. Um, so I just think this is a sort of, you know, a period where where there's that cultural shift happening in the Valley.
2: Well, I think that's a great place to leave it, Aaron. Thank you so much for joining us uh, today. I really appreciate your insights. Yeah, thank you. And thanks to all of you for joining. Please stay with us for the next segment of this conversation.
0: The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post Newsroom was not involved in the production of this content.
3: I'm Suzanne Kelly, CEO and publisher of The Cypher Brief, a national security-focused news organization. Today, we're talking tech at work, and I can't think of a better time to have this conversation with so many people going back and forth between home and the office. Joining me to discuss this is Aaron Smith. Aaron is Senior Vice President of Global Product Management and User Experience at ADP. Aaron, nice to see you.
0: Thank you, Suzanne. Great to be here.
3: You know, I I really love information and and how it helps us understand the direction that trends are moving in. So I'm wondering if we could start off by talking just a little bit about what trends are really fueling success for remote and hybrid work and what are the challenges now that are facing HR?
0: Yeah, so I I think uh, it's a lot to digest, first of all, and the, the, the amount of dynamics around the definition of workspace in and of itself is is going to be constantly changing that's our that's our view and our take and and the reason is because obviously the experience of the pandemic surprised us all and then coming out of the pandemic the forms of how teams work and where your employees potentially work is going to be constantly evolving and changing and so we expect that trend to continue and with that in mind how teams work together or how individual employees work together is really going to be an important part of what is a productive place for an individual or a team to work and so with that with that trend expecting to continue the question is how do you face that challenge head on and there's not one answer that uh, that's going to be afforded to be able to resolve that but um, but, but a couple of key factors that, that we believe are going to be most important is really having a very close pulse on the sentiment and the engagement of your employees. First and foremost, whether they're remote holistically, they're in office or somewhere in between, having a very uh, incremental and a constant way to check in with your employees and and your workforce at large, we believe is gonna be a real key, key skill and tool to be able to tap into this this constant uh, flurry of change between home and office.
3: Yeah. It's not always easy for folks to do. And I'm wondering, are there ways that workers themselves can kind of be a part of, you know, enabling sort of innovation and business growth during all of this newness that we're seeing?
0: Yeah. So um, so we we do like to start with some facts as well and trying to answer the question of where employees can, can help with this particular uh, challenge. And uh, we have an ADP research institute uh, ADPRI that actually did conduct a, a survey very recently in 2022 across a, a pretty wide swat of, of employees and, and found that uh, employees on a two-thirds basis out of that survey are willing to actually make a job change if they're not afforded the opportunity to work in a, in a hybrid model. And so the question is, where can employees be best positioned to help make that uh, unlock more innovation and help make that happen? And And the answer really comes back to the employer? Are you able to really uh, engage with your workforce and your employees, as I mentioned earlier? But also there's very likely a lot of untapped skills and untapped value within your existing workforce that you might not even realize. And so having a channel of new ideas and new innovation constantly come from from your employees directly for those untapped skills that you may not know about, we've found and we believe is going to be a a very key way for employees to be at the forefront of that. And and just to maybe make it more of a a, a real use case, we leverage our own employees um, as essentially our, what we call client, or if you wanna call it customer zero. So we test our products, we use our products, and those ideas continue to flourish from our own employees in our business. And we'd encourage that uh, for anybody to really take advantage of.
3: I'm curious, are there some tools and technologies that you're finding are pretty effective when it comes to providing workers ways to make it a little bit easier to go from home to office?
0: So, of course, uh, it's in our name. We love it. But data, uh, data and data, we we believe is the secret ingredient to empowering uh, your employees, empowering your leaders and empowering your workforce. Of course, that context switching right, between being at home, being in the office, but then maybe being at home and having to to deal with uh, personal situations amongst your office work really means that the connection point between us as perhaps consumers and how we use technology in our daily lives and how we then use technology for our work, that gap in and of itself obviously is closer and closer and closer now more than ever. So very key is to personalize the tools and the technologies and even the data that you have for your employees and your leaders is going to be a real most important tool to be able to employ.
3: Yeah, and I would think that having access to great data, one of the great benefits is being able to understand what might be coming. So I'm wondering, where do you think the future is for remote and hybrid work? Where do you think this is all headed?
0: So uh, we do have a bit of a, a real good view with the data that we that we have at our disposal with our business. We pay one in six uh, employees in the us and so it's a it's a pretty constant stream view of what's happening with the workforce at large and you know, I, I wouldn't say we've got any magical forward looking statements. I think what we're seeing in the data uh, is really the constant change and expectations of unlocking productivity and innovation out of your workforce and we see that in the change of pay elements and wellness and health and and all aspects of of your employee workforce and then we try to obviously offer the technology to be able to unlock value out of that and the data that we're afforded so where it's headed is not a single destination just to just to cut to the chase on that it's constant check as i mentioned earlier constant awareness of sentiment with your employees constant looking at the data that you're afforded and the skills that are there yet to be untapped and then you're able to adapt to whatever changes lie ahead for the mode of, of, uh, of workforce, the mode of location that you might have for your business.
3: Yeah, I think we've all felt exactly that um, since COVID of course, this whole new reality and being able to constantly change and using data to understand that I think is a great idea. Um, Aaron Smith is Senior Vice President of Global Product Management and User Experience with ADP. Aaron, thank you so much for being here to talk about Tech at Work.
0: Thank you, Suzanne, really enjoyed it, I appreciate it. And now, Back to Washington Post Live.
2: Welcome back. For those of you just joining us, welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Danielle Burle, Tech at Work Writer for the Washington Post. I'm now joined by Quaylin Ellingrud. She's senior partner at McKinsey and Company. Quaylin, welcome to Washington Post Live. Quaylin, McKinsey has collected some data on hybrid work and found that Americans want more flexible jobs. Have you found any specific trends by industry?
4: Indeed, I think the trends that we see by industry are that tech workers, computer programmers, finance, uh, executives, legal, art, design, job categories, all have a bit more levels of flexibility than other work. Uh, Ones at the bottom end of ability to be flexible uh, in terms of location work would be frontline workers, right? So food service, customer service and sales, some of those types of work.
2: Gotcha. And are there any differences in how Americans see remote work depending on their demographics or where they live?
4: Yeah, there's um, a big difference both in who wants to work flexibly and who gets to work flexibly or or has the ability to. I think at the highest level, what we see is about 58% of people, of workers being able to work at least one day a week, some much more than that. Uh, from home. So 58% of people can work flexibly, at least for part of the week, meaning 42% have to work all days a week in person. But if we take that 58% and we break it down even further, about 35% of workers, about a third, uh, can work all days a week from home or remotely, and about 23% can work just some days a week. You know, when they're offered flexibility, uh, workers tend to take it, right? Almost nine out of 10 workers take that flexibility, 87% of them. And on average, they work from home about three days a week.
2: Got it, Uh, workers want flexibility, we've heard that before. Um, Has any of your data shown whether there's actually a correlation uh, between performance and remote work?
4: I think it's too early to say, right? It was interesting because early in the pandemic, a number of CEOs were asking, well, How do I measure productivity now? How do I know if my workers are working effectively? And I said, well, I hope it wasn't that you were measuring productivity before by watching your employees sitting at your desk or sitting at their desk and assuming that they were actually productive, right? Hopefully we had better measures of productivity and performance than that. And I think now where there are jobs where productivity and performance is more objective, I think that will allow for greater flexibility because the measures will be clearer and more objective. Where performance is maybe more subjective, perhaps a deeper collaboration, it's more of a team effort, it's harder to tell what one individual did, I think that worries me because it leaves space for um, subjectivity, for uh, maybe misinterpretation of uh, productivity levels. And, It's, you know, the jury is still out. Uh, We will see if not being in the office at all or as much as others leads to different perceptions uh, of actually being productive, but based on historical research, that is a concern of mine. For example, uh, when you have two identical resumes, uh, a man and a woman, and the woman puts active parent teacher association member or any other sort of measure that she's a very active parent, Um, that woman is much less likely about 85% plus less likely to get the job, and that's because of the parental associations and assumptions that we make about her commitment to work. And my concern with more flexible work and being out of the workplace physically is that those unconscious biases, conscious and unconscious biases, uh, are attached to those who are less present and therefore fewer opportunities, less visibility at work, less top of mind when big step-up opportunities come about.
2: Got it. And that actually bleeds into where I wanted to take this conversation was understanding, you know, whether remote work has any impact on career trajectory. It sounds like it's still too early to tell. Um, I I guess I wonder if the same is true, sort of what you were saying about men and women. Um, You know, if women are taking more of these remote opportunities, um, does that say something about what we might see in the trajectory of men and women's careers?
4: I do think overall um, there's a concern because if you compare our workforce levels to pre-COVID, we're now fully recovered in terms of overall number of jobs. In fact, we have a few more men in the workforce than we did pre-COVID three years ago or so, but we have uh, quite a few fewer uh, women—between 500,000 and 900,000 fewer women in the workforce, depending on which month you're counting—and those women typically stepped out right around the time that many schools were going hybrid and have steadily come back very slowly but not yet fully recovered and what we know about women is that when they step out of the workforce on average they're out of the workforce for longer their unemployment is stickier and that when they return that sometimes has you know career-long impacts on their career trajectory and their income so i do worry about that um, in terms of trends in terms of hybrid work we know that about 61 percent Of men can work flexibly, only 52% of women um, can work flexibly. So a different mix there. But in terms of who actually wants to work flexibly, we see interesting patterns. Um, People who are more junior in the organization want to work more flexibly uh, more than those who are more senior. Women, on average, want to work more flexibly than men, and those with children also want to work more flexibly than those without children. So both patterns in who wants to work flexibly that are frankly quite the opposite on average of who gets to work flexibly or has the most flexibility to work from home more days a week.
2: Got it. And how has remote work culture transformed sector se- excuse me, sectors like real estate, transit and technology?
4: I think uh, remote work is affecting uh, real estate prices, of course. We were just talking earlier with Aaron uh, at Box about that in in Silicon Valley. Um, I think we are still in early days of seeing uh, is three days a week, you know, being able to work from home. Does that actually change where people live? Uh, permanently, or you know, does it require five days a week working remotely before people are willing to move outside a broader radius? So we did see during COVID a huge shift and a lot of moves to more tier two cities, right outside of very large cities. Um, we think some of that, some portion of that, is is permanent, and some jobs will be geographically flexible permanently, um, but many may not be, right? As we see with uh, the mandates that you were describing earlier of two, three, four days a week back in the office. So some effect there, but we'll we'll wait to see how much of that will stick permanently. And especially as you think about dual career households, um, you know, one person may be flexible, but the other not. And so do they need to be closer to um, a city or, or the previous location of their work? That all remains to be seen.
2: And we're seeing more and more ceos tell their employees they need to return to the office Um, given how much we've opened up since the early days of the pandemic i wonder are there still any risks associated with that kind of mandate
4: i think there are i think there's you know a broad spectrum from you know five days a week mandated in the office on the one end of the spectrum fully remote all the time on the other end of the spectrum you know save maybe some cultural events and, and a few annual events In the middle though, I do see most companies falling somewhere in the middle of that spectrum. Um, Many of them saying based on the type of the work that you're doing or the group that you're in, we will decide how many days a week makes sense and we'd like your team to come in on the same days, we heard Erin describe Tuesdays and Thursdays. Uh, That might be consistent across the company, or that might be more tailored to the type of the work or the group. Um, I've also seen, for instance, some organizations say, we're going to have a consistent approach, but actually technology, because coding can be done so effectively from home, and we're having a hard time retaining our tech talent, uh, maybe more a few months ago than more recently. we're actually gonna have tech work more remotely than the rest of the organization, but for everybody else, here's the way we're going to approach it. So we've seen a really broad spectrum um, of work from home and flexible options. But to your question of, is there a risk? I think within the same industry, there is a risk that some will have a flight to companies that are more flexible. So um, one example of that is on LinkedIn data, we saw the minority of job postings Uh, In terms of, you know, being flexible uh, on geographic requirements, but that minority of job postings got the majority of resume drops and so much broader um, set of resumes and applications for jobs that are flexible these days.
2: And we've seen, you know, the trend of employers who were pretty flexible when the pandemic started and in the early days um, start to sort of reel it back a little bit and, and start asking more people to come back to the office. Do you think that trend will continue? In pockets, yes. Uh, I, I think we'll start to see clarity
4: on where different companies are landing. And frankly, I think the uh, clarity, uh, clear communication, clarity on how many days will be very helpful for um, all employees right? to just understand what what the requirements are uh, as opposed to guessing at where we might end up. Uh, And as we were describing before, I think a broad range of experiments will also help us understand when does remote work or primarily remote work with some in-person collaboration make more sense. We do see a number of companies focusing on making the most of that in-person time, whether it's your Tuesday and Thursdays in the office or more days a week, focusing on things like celebration uh, and kind of celebrating key moments and milestones together, communication, not all communication, but certain types of communication and coaching and collaboration and focusing that in-person time to make the most of it um, so that people don't feel like I came in all the way. But then I was just sitting in my cubicle and on, you know, Zoom calls or Teams calls all day. I think making sure that it feels like it was a great experience, that it did connect me more deeply to other colleagues when I do go into the office is, is quite important.
2: So obviously we're in a new era of work, given everything you just said. Um, what are the best ways do you think are, are there to attract, retain and motivate employees in this new environment?
4: I think employees these days are really looking more for purpose than they were before. Uh, Interestingly, we've talked a lot about the great attrition overall, and we've seen unprecedented levels of people quitting their jobs. Uh, Interestingly, about a third of the people who quit their jobs quit with no other offer in hand, which we have not seen before, right? So there's real both confidence in the job market that I can find another role, a comparable role, and there's more boldness around and I want to follow my passion. I want to go where I'm valued, where I enjoy my colleagues. Um, and so certainly people are looking for new jobs partially because of pay. Um, that was one big motivator. Another would be because of advancement. But the third most highly ranked reason uh, as the number one driver for why I'm looking for a new job is flexibility. And so I think as we think about all of those things that employees now are looking for, um, this sort of broader alignment to purpose where I feel valued as well as pay, which in some cases may be more table stakes and flexibility will become increasingly important.
2: We've also been seeing, you know, this mass wave of layoffs. um, And I'm curious, you know, given Mm -hmm. the saturation in the market of top talent, um, how can employees stand out?
4: Yeah, I think um, we are Overall, in a shift towards um, a greater focus on skills, so emphasizing the skills that you have, um, the experience, of course, um, is one way. I think many employers are saying it doesn't matter so much the four-year degree or the master's degree that you have. I'm much more focused on the skills and the experience that you have and that you bring to the job. And so I think both talking about those, quantifying those, verifying those in some cases can help uh, people stand out in a more crowded job market.
2: Wonderful. I think that's a great piece of advice, Um, Quaylan. Thank you so much for joining us today. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have uh, here on Washington Post Live.
0: Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.